on the set. Okay, everybody, quiet on the set. Scene one, take ten, Marker. From the studios of the Modern School of Film, welcome to Murmur. My name is Robert Malazzo, and over the next hour together, we'll explore where culture meets craft. Today on Murmur, the rowboat meets the road. Band leader, band member, Johnny Mars with us. Welcome. Murmur. Welcome back to Murmur. Robert Malazzo here with you. I am the founder and the lead instructor of the Modern School of Film with you on Murmur Radio. Murmurradio.com. Social handles at MSF Murmur. Twitter, Instagram. You can download the show anytime, access iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio. Also, you can email me directly at the show, murmurradio at gmail.com. If you have a topic you'd like me to explore with the guest on the show, email me, and I will match your topic to the guest and the guest to the topic, and I'll bring you on to recap it with me and assess and pick through it with me. I will put you through what I put the guest through. <laughs> so email wisely, murmurradio at gmail. Oh, and also uh, check out the Modern School of Film, modernschoolfilm.com for all Modern School of Film comings and goings, all kinds of stuff going on. Murmur Radio. Welcome. Welcome back. Today on the show, Johnny Marr. Heard of him? <laughs> I am going to keep my Smith's love at bay, uh, tied up and chained, gagged in a cage, and some of it will come out. <laughs> Today is not an episode dedicated to the Smiths, although... Every episode is dedicated to the Smiths, maybe. Uh, today is a topic that is the most popular topic. It is the most requested topic unofficially for the show. And also, it is the topic I've taught the most about, officially and unofficially, in my teaching career. The topic is collaboration. What better guest, what better music artist, thinker, architect, mad scientist to have on the show than Johnny Marr. And, and yeah, he's a pretty good guitarist. What's amazing, we think of Johnny in this mythological way as well we should, but as a craftsperson, he's as great as there's ever been playing guitar, creating songs. Yeah, he and Morrissey, uh, another supporting, not supporting character in today, 
authored 70 songs together. They rarely co-created them like in the moment together. Most of their songs were the product of elements coming at each other, lyrical elements, musical elements, and meeting in four released records, four legendarily released records, and one fifth live record. The Smiths were short-lived, but they live on and on and on and will live on. But Johnny's not just a Smith, and that's what we want to talk to him about. We want to talk to him about all of his collaborations, his myriad collaborations, and wrap it in today's topic of collaboration. Can collaboration be taught? Let's start there. I think collaboration is as sturdy or as rocky as the individuals going into it. Not that sturdier individuals and better collaborations create better art. I think we want to talk to Johnny about that part of the sausage making. But the idea of is there a practice to collaboration? Is collaboration an art? Do we reset our mind? Do participants in communal creation reset their mind, recalibrate their mind, recalibrate their canvas and say, this is how I want to enter into a collaboration. Now, after time and experience kicks in with someone like Johnny, it becomes a new muscle and a a really well-developed muscle for Johnny. And that's, you know, can we have a better guest on the show to talk about collaboration? When you look at the history, not only of the Smiths, but uh, but the bands he's an honorary member of, uh, the Pretenders, um, the The, the Cribs, Modest Mouse. Modest Mouse, he actually said, was his happiest collaboration, maybe because there was a romantic side of it for Johnny being an American collaboration. That was his first American collaboration. He's also in Electronica with Bernard Sumner. I can only guess how how well balanced his ego is to not only do those type of collaboration, excavation, experimentations, but also session musicians playing bits and pieces, one-offs, everything but the girl, Billy Bragg, um, Brian Ferry, Beck. So, you know, he is the quintessence, the textbook, the dictionary definition of what a collaborator is. So what is a collaborator? What makes for a good collaboration? Is a good collaboration the goal? Is happiness the goal in this kind of occupation, this strange occupation, this butterfly occupation of art creation? There's no there's no employee manual for being an artist. <laughs> so the etiquette of collaboration really comes back down to cases. What is the etiquette of human beings? Are artists human beings? Are, artist, are artistic collaborators expected to act like human beings? When you look at the Smiths, now it's interesting if we want to start there for a second, you know, Johnny authored, I think, five bands by the time he was 19. <laughs> the Smiths were his fifth band and not his last band. Uh, but he knew Andy Rourke. He knew Andy, who was later to become the basis of the Smiths. They knew each other since they were 11, and they were in bands together. Uh, they were in a band called White Dice together. They were in a band called Freak Party together. Uh, Johnny had also been in a band called Sister Ray, not really embedded in the band. I think he had done some gigs with the band. But a standard for all those bands was the inability to find a lead singer, which Johnny was able to do in the Smiths. You may have noticed that they were able to find a lead singer. <laughs> they they found what they were looking for. Johnny was not a front person. He became a front person, a front artist, a front persona, a front ego. And I want to talk about ego a little bit. 
ego is not an insult. Ego is a noun. Ego is inveterate. We all have egos. We calibrate them differently. They come out in different concentrations. Some people are ego forward. Some people are egocentric. Some people are egomaniacal. Some people are more passive egotistically. And every band seems to find that level, that water level. With the Smiths, it's interesting. It's, it was always Marr and Morrissey. You know, they're, they're two along the spectrum of the greatest artistic collaborators, not just musical collaborators, but artistic collaborators ever, but songwriting teams. Uh, you know, when we think of Lennon and McCartney and we think of uh, Bernie Taupin and Elton John and we think of Page and Plant and, you know, Lieber and Stoller, who were very much the model for Johnny uh, before meeting Morrissey and before knocking on Morrissey's door. And, you know, the rest is legion. So, Ego is always a part of it. And later on, ironically, Johnny had to recalibrate his ego to be the front person of Johnny Marr and the Healers. And Johnny does a lot of solo recording now and does a lot of solo touring. So that's a totally different ethos. Collaboration. Being a band leader, you know, the implicit thing is that there's someone who leans a little more forward in the band to take on the leadership roles. Johnny was really clear when the dust settled on the Smiths, and it seemed to be something that ultimately Morrissey and Moore agreed on, that Johnny became the de facto manager of the Smiths by the age of 23, and it was too much. It, it seemed to be too soon for Johnny to take on that mantle, too much for Johnny to handle, and that and a really, really rigorous tour schedule and, and definitely press schedule and performance schedule and, you know, that really broke the camel's back, this idea of being the band leader. But Johnny has sought out those types of collaborations. Is there a pathology to collaborating? Can you over-collaborate? Can you collaborate with too many people? Can you be a leader when you really need to be a follower? You know, what creates leadership within the collaboration? What creates subservience, let's say? Or wh what is the scale? What is the tilt and pitch of collaboration? There needs to be a leader, no? There needs to be a listener, no. Now the leader has to listen, but the leader also has to etch out the path. So collaboration, especially in music, I think it's much more delicate because film teams don't stay together in the way that bands do or don't. Yes, there are some film collaborators, and Johnny's done a lot of scoring collaborations with Hans Zimmer. I think they worked on um, Inception together and some of Spider-Man 3. And Johnny also did some scoring work with Herbie Hancock on Colors. But film collaborations are short-lived. They're like sprints. So it's kind of damn the torpedoes, although filmmakers tend to bring back collaborators that they want to collaborate with. And that's not just actors. It's crew personnel. So the idea of really intense collaborations is both the music and film, but music becomes this faux family. You know, does collaboration invite family structure? Is family good for collaborators? <laughs> There's this old idea, don't go into business with your family. Well, bands are the ironic manifestation of that because you're supposed to be a family, but you're supposed to work together. <laughs> so it's amazing. I always find it's amazing that bands stay together as long as they do. But at that point, it becomes a sort of different game. You pass the point of no return or you pass the moment where where it all was going to unravel. And every band is unraveled. You can't just look at the Rolling Stones and say, oh, they've never unraveled. That's not true. They've had ups and downs. A band can cloak an up and down by not recording or not touring, but all bands go through, I think, moments of, we almost broke up here or we almost broke up there. So the idea of collaboration in music is especially interesting because 
it's more of a long rhythm graph than film or other kinds of intense collaborations like working on a project. The shorter form collaborations, the non-musical collaborations are, it's all in, it's gotta happen now or never. And you can argue that those shorter form of collaborations lead to really great intense of the moment art. Music, of course, can be intense and of the moment. But when you think of the differences of collaboration, time is also very much a character. You know, if you look at time, if you look at the expanse, I mean, Johnny Marr is a textbook collaborator. I don't know Johnny, but he seems to be someone, and why I was so humbled and flattered that he he accepted the invite to be on the show is he seems to be someone who has lived to collaborate. That's kind of an ironic co- concept. It's sort of a selfless concept. It, it's kind of a pure concept when you think of the implication to me being the art is all. The art is all. The collaborations are a methodology towards the art. Because collaborations and family structures and collaborative units will change. The music and the art form is eternal. So I think Johnny wearing different coats of collaboration is not an implication that he didn't care about any of them. To me, it's, it's an implication that the art was the constant. And I think sometimes fans and lovers of bands, we get that a little confused. We think, no, the band is the constant for the artists. Well, not usually. It's actually the sound and the music. So Johnny, some Smiths fans look askew at him as being the instigator of of the end of the Smiths. I think that's grossly unfair. It's been litigated. It, it will continue to be litigated and never solved. Isn't that great? I think it's great. Why would you want to solve that? What's What's the gain in solving it? All of the guys are still with us. Let them all tell their tale, their Rashomon-like tale, tale of great highs and great lows, of lawsuits and worldwide tours, of artists they've inspired, of art, of art they've inspired, and of a career that's short-lived. It's ironic when we look at collaboration and tension, that last Smiths album that was released, Strange Ways Here We Come, it probably was fraught with the most tension of collaboration. Many people, yours truly included, and also I know uh, Johnny said that it's his favorite of all the Smiths record. Maybe there's something about that moment in time, that deficit of robust collaboration that created something great. Or maybe it's the romance of the end. I don't know. That album is unreal in its beauty. But again, I don't want to look through the old windows of the old house today with Johnny. It's not that it's fair or unfair. It's just a missed opportunity to look at the the breadth of collaboration. Can it be taught? Is it an art form? Is it a conscious practice? Is it is it a conscious practice to its deficit? Is it a reflection of the human beings involved in no more? Is it a tool? Is it a constant? Getting along with people doesn't mean you're going to create great art. It can be. But again, there's no employee manual for collaboration, right? Well, Johnny may feel differently. You know, I've taught collaboration as a class. And as I said, it's our most requested topic unofficially on the show. So let's look at it. We look at it every week, as you know. But today we're going to go right into the lion's den. We're going to go right into the lion's den with a fellow Christian of collaboration. <laughs> We're going to stare it right in the face and learn, oh man, I can only imagine. I, can, can we have an episode that's 17 hours long? <laughs> no? Don't answer that. Today on the show, back to the old house or not. Well, definitely strange ways. Here we come. Johnny Marr, collaboration. Now this. Before the construction of any project, the architect carefully prepares working plans so that correct coordination of all trades is ensured. 
The principles of building construction are the same for all types of work, no matter how large or how small. The examples to be shown are applied to the construction of a house, but the principles involved may also be applied to larger types of construction. Firstly, one must be certain of the strength of the foundation. Watch how the materials go into the hopper. First, the aggregate. Now, the cement and the sand. The correct amount of water is added whilst the materials are being mixed in the revolving drum. Besides good principles or methods, successful construction is dependent on one, good planning, two, good craftsmanship, and three, good teamwork. Paths must be formed steps built and all work left clean and tidy on completion. The architect, builder and everybody concerned is pleased and satisfied with the result of this project because it is the product of good planning, good craftsmanship and good teamwork. In this film you have seen the importance of coordinated effort on the part of all trades. May it serve as a guide to all who are interested in good construction, no matter how small your task. Your part is necessary in order to achieve a successful objective. Remember, teamwork ensures success. I would rather not go fascinates me because it's both antisocial and social, much like collaboration. Today's guest was born on Halloween, and maybe there's a relationship. <laughs> uh, 
uh, him being born on Halloween was just the beginning of the story, act one of a long journey of collaboration. By the time he was 19, he had five bands to his credit, and one band in particular, but that wasn't the end of the story either. He once said, I've been in all my favorite bands. That's a coincidence because he's been in all of our favorite bands. He's a musician, a songwriter, a singer, a band leader, a self-described mad professor, but he's actually a real professor and an honorary doctor. I know he'd rather not go back to the old house, but maybe we can go back to the old house in a new way today and talk about the art of collaboration. Please welcome, it's an honor to welcome, to murmur into the Modern School of Film, Professor Johnny Marr. Dr. Marr, welcome. Welcome to the show. <laughs> Dr. Professor Marr, thank you, Robert. That's, uh, that's a nice introduction, yeah. Took me back to a few... Uh... A few times, a few chapters there listening to that. How are you doing? I'm good, mate. How are you? I'm fine. I'm okay. It's an honor, man. I mean, beyond an honor. Let me t be the millionth person to say that to you. <laughs> oh, hey. Well, it's a privilege. Whatever I've done, it's a privilege. It's fine. <laughs> I don't blame you for anything, except my youth. <laughs> oh, thank you, Robbie. Well, I hope it's turned out okay. Uh, to be continued. We're not going to go back to the old house, but we'll look at some of the doors and windows along the way. There's no one I'd rather talk to about collaboration than you. It's, it's our most requested topic, and this is perfect. So thank you for joining us. I really appreciate it, man. You know, let's not bury the lead. Is collaboration an art? Is in an art form? Uh, well, I think that there's ways of, uh, there's probably ways of getting it wrong if, you, if you're not paying attention and if you don't take it seriously. So I think there's, I think there's probably an art to it. Although, you know, um, in my experience, a lot of the people that I've collaborated with, almost all the people, um, you'll find some common ground with. You would assume that the reason that I've been invited to collaborate with certain people, whether it was the Talking Heads or, um, Hans Zimmer or, you know, whoever, Dennis Hopper, people like that, is because, you know, they, you would assume they, they asked me to come and do a job for a certain specific reason and, and um, they're expecting it to work out. But um, it's, it's, an interesting, uh, it's an interesting topic because um, you can often find yourself working with people. On the one hand, you assume you've got common ground, otherwise why would you be there? But I've collaborated with so many different people now that quite often I've collaborated with people with whom I've got very different backgrounds to. And the the art, the art and the work is the common ground. You know, I mean, to be honest, I, I would say there's an art to it. If, you, if you've collaborated a lot, which I have, and I'd say Brian Eno is another person who comes to mind. He's done a lot of very high profile collaborations and my friend Nile Rogers, too. I think both those people would would probably agree that there there is an art to it. There are there are things that you try and pay attention to. You've taken on the a different role, you know, when you've been in the eye of the storm, and and sometimes it's hard to see the parameters of the storm when you're in the eye of it because you're protected in a strange way, or you protect yourself. The, the sub question is. Can collaboration be taught or is it learned? Is it something you reflect back and retroactively say, oh, I did this and that? Or do you literally carry it along? Have you carried it along subconsciously or consciously in your work? Uh, and obviously every artist is different, but how conscious are you of the articles of collaboration when you're working with someone? Interesting. Well, I'd say, I was going to say it can't be taught. Um, because so much of it is to do with manners, 
stepping aside, a certain sensitivity to other people. Uh, you know, I happen to have a, a kind of, you know, a, quite a knack for it, say, for a number of reasons. But I'd imagine, you know, that you it can probably be taught because I suppose there are some there are some rules that came fairly naturally to me that if I was to analyze it, if I was to give somebody advice, say, if they were collaborating in whatever kind of medium, uh, whether it was in film or uh, design or, you know, even something like people making a sort of visual art together, painting or something, there are some fundamental things that you would probably, you should probably heed. One is um, concede, try and concede to whoever's got the better the better idea wins i've always kind of felt that trying to leave your ego at the door but yet don't be shy either so it's a matter of knowing when when knowing when to step out and um and then knowing when to step up so for example bernard sumner from new order and i formed the band electronic in 1989 that was very much a collaboration where we started with uh, a blank slate, empty canvas, if you like. In that case, it took Bernard and myself quite a long time to work out our roles in a way and how, how each of us were. Several hours, several, and that turned into weeks. And over a period of months, I realized, okay, right, Bernard has a thing where sometimes he'll come in in the morning and he'll have, a, he'll have a, an, he'll, an enthusiastic idea and he needs to tinker around, he needs to experiment. And I'm very fast. And it took me a while to slow my gears down a little and sit back and let him explore his idea. Sometimes, for example, I would think, I, I know what it is. I know what it is you're going for. You, you, you're trying to go for this kind of, this atmosphere or maybe this core change or this idea. And sometimes I was correct and he thought I was a genius. And, <laughs> other, uh, and other times... You know, I, I may have been stepping on his toe, so I had to learn to have some patience and honor. Don't be confused with um, silence on people and a little bit of uh, thinking time. If you're someone who's impatient, uh, needs to be honored because some people need to work at a slower pace. You reminded me something that Stanley Kubrick said. We're speaking with Johnny Marr. He said there are no such things as bad ideas. There's only a better idea, meaning it was a kind of race to the best idea. Could you talk a little bit about that in that sense of offering ideas and the best idea wins? That's a curious concept. Do you feel that's a little draconian or Mancunian, so to say? At the risk of sounding very corny, the, the the basis of that is is all about ego. It's because if you if you you've got two people in a room and you, I always think with collaboration you kind of need to go in there and be like, right, okay, if this is going to work, we're kind of going to need to see each other kind of naked. Okay, you need to be you need to be okay with being vulnerable because unless you go in, you you go in with a bunch of ideas, which I try and do anyway. Um, if if I'm going to be part of the writing process but if i'm going to go in there um and just be you know if i as a guitar player if i'm guesting on on uh, someone's album and they want to throw some stuff at me or on a movie soundtrack you kind of go listen uh in order for me to do this right i need to be uninhibited and i suggest you are uninhibited too if you're writing together and i think this is particularly uh true of uh, if you're writing a script 
um, if you which I've done also if you're, if you're writing jokes comedy particularly you you know the best writers um, teams will tell you that this that they are okay with putting out something done you need to not have an ego about that and that's and that needs to be addressed if you don't know each other hmm. so I kind of you know I communicate in there I go hey listen if we're going to do something, um, and this is what I would advise if, if people were thinking about, you know, if they wondered about how collaboration works, you know, you need to be okay with saying something dumb or playing an idea that might be just not very good. And and if two or three of you, whatever, uh, are working together, you need to be okay with that because you need to be able to express yourself. You need to be able to try ideas and. And to get back to your question, um, you, you know, you need to not not be so attached to your own idea. I know it's all very subjective, but you, I always just thought, you know, note to self: if someone, <laughs> if, if someone comes along with a with a better idea that is built upon my idea, then that idea works. So in some cases, it's meant I've had to play less, or I've had to you know, only playing certain parts of the song and that makes, that makes the track better. So I, I must say that, um, it, I've been, the people I've worked with, uh, whether it's Noel Gallagher or, you know, I worked with Herbie Hancock on a Dennis Hopper film, um, Colors, and, and with Hans Zimmer, people who are great, uh, tend to understand that they tend to have what my friend, once said, we all, you know, egos, but no ego problem. <laughs> you know? Yes, yes. And the other, th the other thing I'll say about one thing that comes to mind about collaboration is it's a little bit like, in my case, um, work with working, say, in the studio, um, it's a little bit like two people getting in a rowboat. So I wrote uh, on the Spider-Man 3 movie, I wrote a couple of songs with Pharrell Williams. And um, the reason why that came to pass was because our dear friend Hans Zimmer, who was, in, who was the, the primary composer who put us together, he thought it would be a great idea to see in action the man who wrote Heaven Knows I'm Miserable Now collaborate with the man who wrote Happy. <laughs> that Hans Zimmer, is, he loves irony, apparently. <laughs> Hans is a funny guy um, and a little bit of a lateral thinker. Yeah. Uh, when you come together, you the work, what's coming through the speakers, what we're producing as a song, that's the horizon to us. The, the, over the mixing board where the speakers are is the horizon. It's where we're going. And it's like the two of us are in a little rowboat together. And in that moment, the horizon and the rowboat are the important things. And our backgrounds and who we are and what we what our pasts are are kind of insignificant, really. And you find that common ground to get to the horizon. I've, I've not really had too much difficult, uh, difficulty in, in finding common ground with people, you know, um, Usually musicians are very enthusiastic and, and quite sharing people anyway. You know, in mine Pharrell's case, for instance, we both know Nile Rogers. So, you know, we were able to, hey, you know, talk about Nile and then we we're both able to talk about certain kinds of music. Mm. But it's the love of the work and where you're going that's the reason you're there. So um, no matter how incompatible it might seem on paper, you've 
I, I found anyway in, in uh, that the the love of the love of work and the love of coming up with ideas cuts through any kind of uh, difference in uh, in background or uh, yeah or you know or, or uh, culture or anything like that. It's, it's kind of amazing. Or or etiquette or language or disposition or taste. I mean, art is democratic in that way, as you know. You know, uh, and I'll, I'll avoid bad boat jokes, bad Titanic jokes here, because there's a kind of irony about the Titanic or collaborations that don't work. You know, there's an expression that therapy doesn't begin until you argue with your therapist. Is tension productive? I mean, there's 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 a threshold and there's a line at which it becomes counterproductive. But would you argue that collaboration needs not argumentation, but the ability to argue or the threshold to tolerate arguments? Yeah, I think generally, not surprisingly, people, two, three, four people, whoever, all pushing in the same direction with enthusiasm is is preferable. I think enthusiasm goes a hell of a long way. Um, however, having been in a number of groups now, um, I, the the thing with, with rock groups, certainly, um, I don't know whether it's the same on the film, on a movie set, but um, there has been times that I've, I've seen where tensions actually um, are, are quite useful. So say in the case of when I worked with Talking Heads, I'd just come out off the last Smiths album, which was, which became very, very tense. It's quite a basic thing, but if people are having a hard time communicating or there's a kind of cold atmosphere in the room, it can either seize everybody up and no one wants to be there. And I'd imagine that's, you know, uh, very, very uh, counterproductive. But uh, in the case of the Smiths last recordings, uh, we just got on with making music as to avoid speaking to each other. Hmm. So it, it certainly sped the process up because no one really wanted to communicate. So we, we just got the thing done and there was tension in some of the music and that was pretty interesting. And then it just so happened that when I then went almost immediately to work with the talking heads, they were in the middle of their, well, they were on, on their last record as well. And there was definitely some tension when those four people got together. Um, it, it, I will stress though that it didn't feel like antagonism. Uh, I've been in, I know what groups are about and I know when there's tension from people who love each other and there's definitely love there, but there was a, there was definitely a kind of tension going on that I sensed. And what it, what happened there was again, as with the Smiths, it meant everybody just shut up and got on with making music. There wasn't a lot of sitting around telling stories. So let's look at it. The opposite would be, if everybody's so comfortable and just hanging out, uh, either on, on you know, either in the, the rehearsal room or you know, if, if on the stage of a theatre, or if it gets too, just too comfortable where people are just sitting around telling stories and running out for coffee, that's actually I w- I would hate that more than a tense recording studio because I, I can't stand entropy. The enemy of uh, of creativity is this aimlessness. That I, I I've been around that a little bit too, and that is horrible because that really is draining when people don't have a common vision. So there needs to be some energy in the room. There needs to be some people need to be wound up. They either need to be wound up with enthusiasm and joy, or wound up with some kind of antsy 
uh, agenda. Speaking with Johnny Marr, not to overquote this, or, you know, as you said, if people want to go through the story of the Smiths, buy a good book, you yeah. know, buy, buy your memoir, you yeah. know, which is an amazing memoir, or Maz's memoir, to be fair. But in the sense of, we, we don't want to do a Rashomon thing here, but, you know, Mike Joyce said something interesting. He said, uh, it wasn't as if there had been a big breakdown in communications at the end. Um what was that communication like? Was there just no, I hate the word small talk, but was, was it, was, was it like four surgeons reporting for surgery? No, no. Well, you know, the reason why we, I can't really elaborate on that because, because there was a breakdown in communication. So there, there you, there you were. That's the difference between me and Mike. He thought there was no breakdown in communication. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, that, that's, uh, that, that says it all there. You know, I always wanted to collaborate, um, and that really gave me a lot of uh, inspiration and a lot of ideas. So even when I was in the Smiths, uh, I collaborated with different groups, everything but the girl and um, and uh, Brian Ferry. And Brian Ferry. Well, that was right afterwards, actually. That was after the Smiths split. But um, right. Billy Bragg and uh, Kirsty McCall. So. Um, it's always been part of what I've done and I looked, that was because I admired mostly, as we say, American musicians who've done that before me, um, most notably Nile Rogers and Brian Eno too. I, I just couldn't wait to do that. Like really spread my wings and learn about every different kind of process. Uh, how does, how does a singer songwriter work? How, how's Billy Bragg doing it? You know, how is, how are the talking heads doing it? And uh, how was Brian Ferry doing it? Uh, I, I just really wanted to, it was all for me part of, and still is part of an education for me. Uh, and as with more, more recently working with Hans Zimmer on movie soundtracks, I think it's, it's all part of making me the musician I want to be, really. Let me throw a premise out, and you can uh, deflect it or just say it's shite. Um, I was looking, I was thinking, rather, about uh, the bands you formed at a very early age. <laughs> Is there a pathology to forming a band? Was it ever addictive for you? And I mean that lightly. Do you think, stepping back, that maybe too many bands is too many bands you know there's the old expression in nfl football if you have two starting quarterbacks you don't have one starting quarterback yeah uh not really because i i kind of see i guess if i think about david bowie um you know it, it you work with in a situation um for a few years with certain musicians and that's really working and then you get a a, a different vision and you you want to change the scenery and you want to change the production, literally. Um, another way of looking at it is, you know, if you're working with a theater company, I imagine, uh, and a director and you, you make, you know, you have a, a few really good runs. If you were a, a movie director, Tarantino or um, Scorsese or Hitchcock or someone, and you have your, you, you have your cast and then that cast uh, enables you to 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 create and you make you make your psycho and you make the birds and you make your vertigo or, or whatever or you make your pulp fiction and whatever it is once you once you've done a run of those things 
you what do you do? You just still work with those same people for 45 years? <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, but you know it's a double-edged sword, Johnny, and you know this better than anybody. The fans get hurt. You know, this just in, newsflash. And you know, I'm not, I'm, I'm having a joke with you here. You know, it's, yeah. we wanted De Niro to work with Scorsese forever. And then when he started working with DiCaprio, it feels like a betrayal. I know it's not fair. Yeah. But I, well, but you're right. We yeah. can't do that. Life doesn't work that way. Well, we evolve, right? Just for some groups, you know, I mean, I, my friend, you know, I, I'm friendly, uh, not surprisingly, people, people might imagine that, you know, I'm friends with Peter Book and, REM stayed together for a long, long time, and he was in that role, and um, uh, as uh, is The Edge as well. And, they, and those are guys who, who've got that family thing, who made it work for them. Uh, but you can't apply that template onto everybody. Yeah. And um, just as David Bowie... Um, He's, he's not Mick Jagger. He doesn't want to work. He doesn't want to work with the same musicians for fifty years, and um, that was just in my DNA from uh, being a teenager that I would never, never wanted to be in the same group for my entire entire life. Now, I hear what you're saying, and I understand that that you know fans um, go. Be- and I'm not taking their side. No, well, I'm not. I'm not against anybody. You know, fans, right. Um, but what, if every group and every musician was was kind of was that was their fate, that the four, the three or four people that they were started out with, that is their fate till they die. That would just be weird. <laughs> and to me, it's weirder to me the idea of playing with the same bass player and the same singer for your entire life is a weirder prospect to me than, than, than being in different groups. You know, it's funny, but you've been in a long-term personal relationship. I mean, you and Angie go back decades. So I know it's different, but it's, it's interesting. This idea of polygamy, artistic polygamy, you know, that kind of thing. I I was wondering, I was speaking with Johnny Marr. I was thinking about Joe Moss, the late, great, Joe Moss, very close to you and the guys, but especially to you because he continued to be your manager, you know, showing you that VHS documentary of Lieber and Stoller that seemed to put a light bulb over your head. What was it about watching those collaborators? Because now we're looking at maybe the songwriting collaboration. You and Moss are part of the spectrum of the great collaborators ever. What was it about watching that documentary of Lieber and Stoller that said, oh, that's desirable having an intimate creative partner and and did you study the breakdowns like what happened to lennon and mccartney did you study the trail of broken collaborations plant and page you know mick jones and joe struggle did you study that no god no i didn't i didn't i don't study things like that um (laughs) (laughs) i i uh is this is this can that actually be studied i've never been i've never even thought of that but (laughs) the thing with lieber and stoller lateral thinking is a very uh handy handy device if it's married to youthful enthusiasm and in my case i let's put it this way i in i was probably the only 17 year old on the planet in 1981 to be um 
looking to compare myself with Lieber and Stoller. Amen. Because in <laughs> 1981, in 1981, if you were 17, you know, you were, you were dressed up as a new romantic and dancing around to Adam and the Ants, which is, which is fair enough. That's <laughs> fine. But I, you know, I, I got on this very, um, uh, quite unusual, I guess, odyssey, if you like, to learn uh, and this is before the Smiths were formed, to learn about the girl groups. I was very inspired by the music of Phil Spector, which was to me was just much more weird than what was being offered in the charts in the UK and the United States. And so listening to the Marvelettes and, and the Ronettes and the Shirelles and, and, and the Shangri-Las, those records I, I really enjoyed and absolutely loved as an alternative to kind of let's call it the goth scene and i thought that i was onto something with this idea of learning about those kind of arrangements and the sound of those records uh trying to make a modern guitar group uh an indie rock guitar group that were in influenced by that so that's why uh i found myself watching a libra and stoller documentary at 17. now i was like a sponge the Brill building scene in the 1960s and Libra and Stoller and Redbird Records and, and Burt Burns and Bang Records and all of this stuff that I wanted to learn about. It was very, very unusual circumstances. I, I think, I, you know, even at the time I knew it was very, very, very unusual. And one of the reasons why I went and knocked on Morrissey's door was, was aside from the fact that he was the only singer that I knew of at that time, who wasn't doing anything was because I knew that he was a fan of the girl groups and he was the only other person on the planet I knew who knew about those things. It was very, very unusual circumstance. It wasn't, it wasn't like we came out of the punk scene where everybody was suddenly wanted to make music that sounds like the Stooges or everybody wanted to have short hair or everybody, you know, wanted to wear ripped up clothing or whatever. What I was trying to do at that time that led to the formation of the Smiths was quite eccentric. And that was one of the reasons why when Morrissey and I got together, uh, one thing that isn't, is never um, commented on is that for the first 10 months or whatever, it was just me and him on our own in the trenches. Wow, that's a long time. Not, well, it felt like an eternity at the time, but there was just he and I knocking on the doors and literally knocking on other people's doors and trying to get our tape heard and trying to get demos and all the usual route. So he and I got real tight while we were learning to write our first, well, what became our, our first record.
I, I know there's a lovely story about you playing You're the One for uh, Morrissey, the Marvelettes, uh, which is a B-side. You know, it's funny when you think of the first meeting between the two of you guys picking out B-sides. That's when you know you have two savants meeting for the first time. And you were swapping tapes and Dusty Springfield and Patti Smith. And, you know, again, people can buy books and pick through the details. But it, it is a fascinating thing. I mean, part of the collaboration, though, do you have to like being in each other's company? I know that sounds cheeky. It's not meant to. Young filmmakers ask me a lot, how do I hire a crew? I said, well, keep in mind, you're going to be with this person 15 hours a day for like months. Do you have to like each other? It sounds like you and Morrissey in Act One really liked each other's company oh no we really did like each other's company and i think um i'm thinking now say joy division that uh say i know that ian curtis was kind of hired or it was agreed that he'd be the singer over the phone he called bernard sumner on the phone because bernard had bumped into him and bernard thought well he's not a complete idiot and we quite like him they'd never heard him sing and so Personal chemistry chemistry goes a hell of a long way. So to answer your question, I think you do have to like each other. It's like, it's kind of different when you've already got a track record, I think. When you're starting out and you're trying to get things together and you're trying to, I guess, trying to get be noticed for, a, for, for being an actor or a playwright or whatever. Um, yeah, I think when you, when you pick a partner, you're usually uh, you you really need to get along because you're usually broke uh you're climbing a mountain you're on a mission you know to get back to collaboration i i recently did a like a, a teen ted talk with nile rogers and um i was asked by a member of the audience what advice i might have for someone starting out i just said to this young girl uh, who i think was wanting to write be a writer of scripts i said to her, well do it with a mate. Yeah. Do it with a pal. Yeah. You know, do it with a friend because the mission, you know, we all know when you're starting out, whether you've got resources or not, you know, it's, it's not easy. And and when you've, uh, there's a lot of competition out there and, um, <laughs> and um, you know, sometimes you're not taking as seriously as you want to be and all of that. And when you've got a pal, when you've got a, a mate with you, the mission's halved. You know, you, you if you can complement each other, you know, you, you can, the obvious stuff, like you, you know, you, when one of you is losing a little bit of enthusiasm, then the other one's there with a little bit of energy. And um, it's just, you know, it's a problem halved, I think. And and then if you're lucky enough to, to complement each other and um, then you know, things can really be a lot easier than if, than if you're on your own. Yeah, you know, it's funny, and as we cruise through our mid-beat here with uh, Johnny Marr so graciously with, with one of the great legends of, of music, pop, rock, just you name it. Um, it's interesting, Andy Rourke, you guys knew each other since you were 11, uh, roughly, like early teens, and correct the record. Yeah. It's funny, in the, lost in the story of you knocking on Morrissey's door is you can't do that anymore get arrested <laughs> so so I, I guess just to deepen this one thing before we get into some final beats how do you find a collaborator so this person just you may be sleeping with them or you they may be your best friend already so you're saying look around you as kind of act one or draft one is that first of i think i would say definitely be intrepid and do not be meek uh if you are not uh uh, uh an assertive person 
you need to act like an assertive person. You need to pretend that you're an assertive person because the door is, uh, I was going to say, people ain't going to come knocking on your door unless, you, unless you're Morrissey and, you know. But um, <laughs> if you're thinking, if you were talking to film students or uh, music students, I would say you look around and if you're shy, you pretend you're not and you don't be afraid of rejection and, uh, and, you, and also don't be afraid of it not working out. Yeah. Uh, it's that obvious thing nothing ventured nothing gained for me luckily i was a good a a combination of intrepid i was definitely on a mission uh i had a fair amount of uh, as opposed to confidence it was actually it was all a front but also uh, uh a lot of desperation i was completely desperate uh to get out of my out the humdrum suburbs and out of the kind of um, dead end sort of future that I, you know, was afraid was going to be my, my fate if I wasn't careful. I knew that um, I had a, a, a big idea. Uh, I had a big idea about a group I wanted to form, which was, as I said, it was this sort of combination of the girl group sort of music going through Patti Smith's equipment, but with trying to put my own kind of Rolling Stones, which you know, young people can do that, you know, you, because I was sort of, I just thought, well, if that sounds like a good idea to me, how do I go about it? But to me, I'd spent a few years sleeping on couches and being in bands that didn't work out and dealing with assholes and um, having, uh, you know, uh, a lot of rejection. And I just didn't give up. Well, uh, what's more important, desperation or hunger? Because there's a difference or is there a difference? Uh, I don't think, for me, there wasn't a difference, no. Mm. Uh, I think hunger, let's just say if we're going to look at that, hunger is, there's a little more of, um, it's slightly less negative, I think. And I mean, I I had that too. I I, I had a real passion and I still do. I I really do. Once I get an idea in my mind and I live with it and I don't see any downsides other than possible economic disaster, (laughs) (laughs) I, I just I just follow that idea. Not knowing you, but from afar, what's fascinating about you is you're the quintessential guy who loves being in a band. I know that sounds left-handed, but it's not meant to. I mean, the guy who puts a poster on the the post outside and said, wanted drummer. Like, there's something about that is so pure to me. Nothing in your backstory is about being as famous as Jesus Christ, you know, nothing is about that. It's all about finding musical projects and musical chemistry that really creates great music. But when you became a front man, for want of a better term, you know, when Johnny Moore and the Healers formed around 2000, did the psychology change? Did you feel, oh, I have a new duty now. I have a new vocabulary I need now. I'm not the guitarist only anymore. What was the change? I did, and it was great, but not in the way that people might first assume. It wasn't great because suddenly all the attention was on me and I was in the middle of the stage. It was great because it just set me up a whole new set of, um, of challenges, and as as is the case now, you know. Um, it, frankly, it it would be quite easier for me to be the star guitar player in a, in a band and rock up at some festivals and have people pat me on the back and just, you know, roll out off the tour bus in my sunglasses and go on stage and have people point at me and say, there's the guy from the eighties, you know, and, 
no, and hey, that's nice. That's not a bad way of making a living. <laughs> and it, it, it's less stressful than being a band leader. But, but looking for inspiration for what I want to sing about, finding what I want to say, and, uh, you know, uh, vocal melodies don't just fall out of the sky. And no good ones don't anyway. Or, or they, the good ones do very rarely. But you have to get in like anything. You have to get in and do a lot of work. So it's a lot more work for me uh, being a frontman. And there's also a lot more risk, you know. And, um, you know, and there's a lot more responsibility. I feel a responsibility towards my bandmates and um, and the people around me, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, uh, you know, hey, it's great. I don't mean to sound like it's a complaint. But it's more it's more difficult it's the, than... Um, than just being the guitar player in the band, you have to do more press and blah, blah, blah. The payoff isn't that I get more attention. That's not the payoff. The payoff is great ideas, looking for good ideas. I love playing the guitar, as everyone might imagine, and I love singing my songs. But, uh, but I've always really loved trying to find ideas from being a kid, you know. So the playing of the guitar is that's something that I do like naturally, but looking for ideas, looking for inspiration. Uh, sometimes that can be frustrating and you feel a little, you can feel a little hollow if you're, on, you're feeling uninspired. But um, it's, that's what being an artist is. Look, just be, being, coming back to what we first started talking about, like paying attention, paying attention to lines in films and, uh, and the odd phrases in books or what someone might say in an interview or some, what something you might overhear chasing down of, of of inspiration to me is an end in itself and it frankly is is worth really is what what i live for really and always have the, the word you used a lot talking and thinking about your childhood and what maybe motivated you because your childhood sounded rather balanced and solid i mean which is rare in any artist's backstory but you talked about transcendence and i think that's that's a goal only a true artist would seek. And I think you've accomplished that in spades. Tell one quick story and then one quick question and then we'll say goodbye Johnny Moore so graciously with us today. And I was thinking of Johnny Moore and the Healers and I was thinking of Zach Starkey. And yeah. Zach Starkey, different surname, but is Ring of Stars' son. And I was thinking of the Beatles and you and Morrissey. And tell the story about how you found yourself incredibly, right after the Smiths broke up, Chat, chatting up just a bit, singing next to Sir Paul McCartney. I saw her standing there, but chatting him a little bit about the ethos of collaboration yeah. in bands. Yeah, yeah, sure. Well, um, yeah, well, right after it was announced that the Smith split, which meant that we were still very much in the process of breaking up. Um, you know, the Mike and Andy would were still visiting my house occasionally and we were still sort of seeing each other and it was all very raw. It went on for a long time. So whilst that mushroom cloud was, uh, in, you know, o over our heads, um, I, I got a call literally 15, 15 minutes after the, it had been announced on the radio that Smith had split up, but from Paul McCartney's office asking whether I'd, uh, I want to go and play with Paul, uh, <laughs> So, you know, so I'd spent 15 minutes thinking that I was going to have to go on back and live with my parents. Uh, that might have been 15 years, but uh, that was a, I was not expecting that phone call. So I then found, so of course, 
you know, we arranged for that to happen. And I found myself a few days later uh, in a rehearsal room with, with uh, Paul's musicians and Paul and Linda, who right from the bat were amazing uh, people and um, made me feel very welcome and um, as, as uh, relaxed as you can be when you're about to uh, plug in and play with one of the Beatles. But, um, at, you know, at the age of 23 or whatever it was. And, um, you know, what I noticed about, I mean, I've met Paul McCartney a few times now, hung out with him, but um, it sounds so dumb, but he's a guy's a musician. You know, I mean, there's someone who's that like famous and, mm. you know, you, you, you've never experienced a world without that person being, you know, one of the most famous people in the world. You know, um, I, I've never known a world without Paul McCartney, but... Uh, you know, the way he talked to me and the band and then when he put his instrument on and started playing the bass, you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. This guy's got so much attitude. He, he just wants to play. He doesn't, want to, he doesn't want to sit around telling stories and telling anecdotes. And um, so that enthusiasm and genu- genuine love of playing was, was, was the, first, the first thing that, you know, impressed me. But then he said, well, okay, what do you want to play? And I was like, well, I kind of shrugged my shoulders. And then we started playing some rock and roll stuff. It was his habit then that uh, he would play stuff that he liked from when he and John Lennon first got together. So we played 25 Flight Rock by Eddie Cochran and we played a oh, couple of Billy oh, Holly songs, and um, which luckily I, I knew, you know, from the rockabilly scene in the early 80s. And then he, he said to me, oh, hey, do you want to, uh, I've got this song, I saw a standing there. Do you, <laughs> <laughs> I said, uh, "Yeah, okay." <laughs> uh, do you want to uh, do you want to sing harmony on this one? And man, so at the same time as uh, the 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 world standing still at that point, my also my brain was racing so fast because I was thinking mm. I was I was just flashing on all of that. Well, hang on a minute, I just. You, when you say sing harmony, you mean that me and you are going to sing. I saw her standing there, right, and I want to sing John Lennon's bit right in this microphone, right next to you. Is that is that what you're saying? <laughs> um, so that was the mel- mental calculation written all over my face too. So so we did that, and then we did a few more Beatles songs, and it was incredible. You know, uh, we did uh, uh, things we said today, and uh, which was a suggestion of mine, and um, did a few Beatles songs. We did Day Tripper and come together and some other stuff. Uh, yeah, then we took a break. So we we was sitting around smoking cigarettes and drinking tea. And uh, Linda asked me about the split and I was sat with the, the two of them. And then uh, she said, what's going on? I said, I want my band split. How's that going? And he asked me how it was going and how you were feeling. And I just decided to level with him, you know, just, well, it's she, it's horrible. And the press are kicking my ass and, Everybody's asking me about it, and there's all this stuff going on in in the media, and the band are sniping at each other. And you know, we were together. He asked how long we've been together. I mean, he knew of the band, and he knew what we'd done. You know, he was hit. But uh, so I uh, decided that um, here was my opportunity to get the the wisdom and the path, the oracle, <laughs> that because I figured that if anyone on the planet was 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 uh, was uh, qualified to to wise me up to to how to deal with the breakup of uh, of a band and a songwriting partnership. It was this man in front of me. Right. So I laid out all my woes and 
explain everything that had been going on and why I thought it happened and where I was at and everything. And he listened to me very patiently and very graciously. He just leaned forward and said, well, that's bands for you. Wow. Wow. At the time, I thought, what? (laughs) 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 But seriously, you know, over the years... You know, I've sat with many a musician in a dressing room and in a hotel room at 2 a.m. and in a in bars and all kinds of different places. You know, believe me, my friends who've like been going through all kinds of stuff with their bands. And um, really, that's what it boils down to. That, that pithy reply, that's bands for you because it covers a lot of bases, I'm telling you. If he had said to you, I regret what happened with the Beatles... And I think you should put things in perspective. Would would that have changed anything? I know this sounds like an insane question to end on, but if you know, if this sign, this the music gods presented the sign in a weird way that could that could have gone either way. If he had said, you know what, maybe you need to step back a little bit, or would would you have thought it differently coming from McCartney, or would you think history would have taken the course it took anyway? No, of course not. Because I would have, I would, my, of course I wouldn't have looked at it any differently. I would have just said, did you not hear what I just told you? (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, no, just, just to, you know, for clarification, uh, I've never regretted that, uh, that, that happened for one second. I, I love that. And I, in my weird fan meditation of it, it is a beautiful piece of the history of so many human beings. What I think is important to say to you as we say goodbye and to everyone who's loved your music is you're a musician, you are an artist, you are not only a smith. (laughs) I I think the history of rock and roll is that you are a musician's musician. You are an artist's artist. Oh, thank you, Robert. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, well, appreciate that, Robert. Yeah. Well, no, um, I am a smith. And I'm also a, I'm a the, in the there as well. You're a crib. I'm a crib, and I'm an electronic, and um, you're a pretender. Yeah, all, all, all of that. But um, I've always, uh, I, I, collaboration was, was, was always what I was going to do, you know. And, and um, uh, but uh, I'm proud of the, I'm proud of the whole, uh, the whole shebang, and um, I hope it. I really, really hope it continues, and uh, I appreciate your interest, and it's been very interesting. Thank you. Cheers, mate. You know, I wish you all the best, man. If I could be of any service, uh, please let me know. That's great. Nice to talk to you. Very interesting. Good luck with the program. And take care of yourself. All right, Robert. You're welcome. Thanks, man. Take care. Bye.
Oh man, what a day. <laughs> what a thrill. What an honor. I want to thank Johnny Marr for being here with us today on the show. I want to thank you for being here with us today on the show. You can be with us anytime. You can be with Johnny and I anytime. You can listen back. Why not? <laughs> I'm going to. MurmurRadio.com. Download, subscribe, anytime access, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio. Social handles, Twitter, Instagram, at MSFMurmur. You can email me directly at the show, murmurradio at gmail.com. If you have a topic you'd like me to match with a guest, I will do that. I will bring you on. We will collaborate. See, collaboration is everywhere all the time. It never ends, thankfully. See ya.